the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Surf to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's an absolute delight to have historian Stephen Wertheim with us to discuss his important and timely new book, Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Stephen Wertheim is a historian of the United States in the world. He's a research scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University, and he's the director of the new Quincy Institute's Grand Strategy Program. In Tomorrow the World, Stephen Wertheim reveals how U.S. leaders first made the decision to pursue military dominance, an objective that for most of U.S. history, it looked unnecessary at best and imperialistic at worst. Stephen Wertheim, welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Stephen Wertheim, for many years, at least since the Second World War, the United States has been viewed as the preeminent power in the world. Your book traces the birth of U.S. global supremacy, as you call it, to the early World War II period. Would you please tell us about your premise and why, 80 years later, this history should matter to us? Well, I had a mystery in mind, and it only deepened as I embarked on my PhD studies and read more and more works of history, which is, why was it and when was it that American officials and intellectuals decided that the United States should become the dominant political and military power uh, with forces across the world and taking responsibility for enforcing world order? This was not what the founders of the United States had in mind, and it wasn't even what major American politicians and intellects in the early 20th century had in mind either. And as late as the beginning of 1940, when the war in Europe broke out, World War II, uh, it was really not on the table to many serious thinkers. And yet, that changed dramatically by the end of 1940 and into 1941. And then, of course, uh, by the uh, end of the war. So exactly why did that decision get made for the United States not just to enter World War II, but also, and perhaps uh, more profoundly for our own time, uh, to become the dominant power across the world? in something like perpetuity. Let's talk a little about that because some people in your book has been respectfully reviewed in the highest caliber, caliber journals as it should be. And I also remind people that it's a very readable and accessible book. So while it meets the tough criteria of professionals, it's open to all of us to, to follow well. What would you say, I mean, when did, if you say that decision was made, let's say May 1940, June 1940, as Hitler moved in rapidly to France, how was the decision made? Is this Franklin Roosevelt sitting in his office in Hyde Park talking to a few people? Or, you know, how does American foreign policy reach a decision like this? And what's the role of 
elected leaders, outside people, and the general public? It's a really good question. So I don't think it was just or mainly President Roosevelt who reached this decision, though he was obviously very important. But in the main, uh, there was a decision among a set of people, mostly concentrated in the north, what we in the northeast uh, corridor of the United States. We call it the Acela corridor today. No Acela back then, though. From my experience, the trains haven't improved all that much in our own time. Hmm. Um, but there had been a kind of growth of a foreign policy class, particularly over the preceding two decades in the aftermath of World War One. Foundations like Carnegie and Rockefeller had been building up institutions. The Council on Foreign Relations was founded, as were some other lesser remembered institutions like the, the Foreign Policy Association uh, or the Institute for Pacific Relations. So there was a set of experts in the United States uh, and also, of course, in the state, in the State Department, the military and so forth, uh, who were giving some serious thought to, to foreign affairs. So when the war in Europe broke out, uh, the uh, it was members of the Council on Foreign Relations who lined up support from the Rockefeller Foundation to start doing post-war planning already before the United States had entered the war. And they approached the State Department, recognizing that still, even after the growth of the New Deal state, the State Department was a very small place, as was uh, the armed services. And so they volunteered to do post-war thinking and planning already uh, in a semi-official capacity. And these become the main site of American post-war planning prior to Pearl Harbor, after which many of the members that were assembled under the Council on Foreign Relations auspices uh, joined the State Department to take part in the formal post-war planning operation uh, led by the by the U.S. government. But it wasn't just them, too. It was, you know, there was a set of people in private and in public in different universities who were all in these very fast-moving and confusing wartime years trying to get a sense of what role should the United States play in the post-war world and what was what were the implications of terribly disturbing Axis uh, conquests in 1940 and 1941. And so even so public a figure like Henry Luce, the publisher of the Time, Life, and Fortune magazines, uh, he takes to the pages of his own Life magazine in February of 1941 to proclaim that the United States is now going to replace Great Britain as the world's leader. Uh, and he proclaimed the American century. And this is still many months before the start of Pearl Harbor. So there were all these conversations happening, you might say, just below the surface of the highest leaders like FDR and his cabinet members that were bubbling up uh, both in private circles and in, in public before Pearl Harbor. Well, let me ask a few questions as a devil's advocate, uh, because these are really important points you're hitting on, and they have so much relevance for today. How would you respond to people who say, wow, that's pretty alarming. You've got a group of non-elected people basically coming to conclusions, then trying to sell them to the public, or maybe not even try to sell them to the public to bake it into the cake where President Roosevelt and others sort of fall into line. Well, how would you respond to that? 
Well, I would say that um, for better or worse, the foreign policy debate that crystallized in 1940 and 41 was much more open-ended and competitive and political than what we see today, actually. So yes, it's true that there were people working in private to do post-war planning. That's not exactly democratic. But then again, I do think it makes sense that, you know, in light of rapidly changing events, there should be experts assembling to try to figure out uh, the implications of these events in our own time. And I wish uh, in the age of a pandemic, there was more kind of creative thinking happening uh, right now at, at high levels, whether in private or in public. Uh, but there was a really uh, active debate in these years uh, over what role the United States should play. The America First Committee uh, got together in the fall of 1940 and assembled a coalition of people who thought the United States should not uh, aid the allies uh, or uh, go to war. And they articulated a viewpoint that had adherence in Congress, uh, who had some power but ultimately lost out uh, with the battle over Lend-Lease aid. That was mostly resolved uh, in the spring of 1941. So, you know, I think there's an enduring problem that we face, which is how do we have in a democracy a foreign policy that is remotely democratic? Uh, that's a problem, and it certainly is a problem today. But rather depressingly, I see a more competitive environment then, even despite the work that was going on uh, behind closed doors than I do today. And I'd also say, as I mentioned uh, with respect to Henry Luce, uh, there was not a huge difference between the kinds of plans that were made in private by the U.S. government or by semi-official circles like the Council on Foreign Relations and the kind of public debate that was happening in Congress or in the pages of magazines and journals. So I don't take a fundamentally conspiratorial view of the story that I tell about the early years of World War II or the later years of World War II. I do think that elites were trying to legitimate to the public what they were planning, but that's what I expect them to do. And I think the fact of the matter is that the public ultimately did not really object to um, what uh, the, the planners had in mind. Let's pursue this a little bit further. So the situation you're describing is one that opponents or advocates would likely view as the establishment as it then was in the United States. It was a narrow slice geographically, a narrow slice demographically, narrow slice educationally, and these aren't meant to be critical observations, just descriptive. How do you think of it? And where is that establishment, if at all, today? Yes, it was a slightly different foreign policy establishment then um, than it is now. Narrower in some senses, wider in others. I think it was narrower in the sense that the you know the kind of people occupying establishment positions were largely white male, uh, educated in Ivy League institutions, that kind of thing. Today, they read more diverse in terms of basic characteristics. But on the other hand, uh, back then, at least coming into World War II, uh, there was, I think, a more wide range of views put forward within uh, the elite circles and debated among them. So somebody like uh, historian Charles Beard 
uh, a strong opponent of U.S. intervention in the war was surely a member of the U.S. foreign policy elite uh, with significant influence. Coming into World War II, he leaves World War II ostracized, as do others who share uh, a viewpoint like his. So I think it raises a really interesting question about you know, whether our current crop of experts in now a much more developed set of institutions and they're focused in DC today, you know, are more democratic or less than um, the ones that, you know, I think we don't have any trouble calling them elitist uh, back in the middle of the 20th century. But on the other hand, they also had, I think, a, a greater respect then for um, presenting alternatives to the public uh, in the spirit of, well, the public in a democracy should really have a strong voice in foreign policy. I think that since the 1990s, many American foreign policymakers, a kind of new generation, came to the conclusion that the public didn't really matter when it come, came to foreign policy. In many ways, subsequent events have vindicated that viewpoint. Uh, so I think there's a much less um, a much less ecumenical approach now towards um, putting forward alternatives in the spirit of improving public debate and letting the public decide. Hopefully, that's changing a little bit with institutions like the the Quincy Institute and and others uh, who have uh, gotten to work in recent years in in D.C. But we'll see. Well, let's drill down a little bit more on this part, at least two other veins in your very important thinking, Stephen Wertheim. One is, tell us a little bit about the Council on Foreign Relations then and now. The Council is viewed by many people, uh, particularly on the, you might say, far left or far right of mainstream discourse as a villainous elitist institution with disproportionate influence. How do you see it? Well, the council uh, was one of the first major think tanks established in the United States to focus on foreign policy. It was established in the wake of World War I. Uh, and I think there are certainly legitimate questions to be raised about um, its, of course, uh, what conclusions it comes to when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, which I do raise in the in the book, as well as its relationship to the public. I will say, as a historian, one thing I'm struck by is uh, how in the interwar period, the 1920s and 1930s, and even into the 40s and 50s, um, the council, as well as other think tanks, made a very strong effort to go out to the public, uh, to go out to states in uh, the Midwest and the Pacific, uh, various places in the country, and hold debates uh, in the spirit of, well, you know, we want to come to you, the public, and sharpen arguments on different sides. Uh, and as I've written with a colleague, Daniel Bessner, that tradition seems to have gotten lost. And now what one tends to see from mainstream institutions are reports that uh, come out offering only one alternative and acting as though any other alternative would spell disaster. And I think that's a more elitist approach um, that serves us very poorly. 
Uh, and, you know, I think one similarity between then and now is that the, the council tends to incubate. It's a it's a institution representing the establishment. And so it tends to reflect what the establishment view is. Uh, but one thing that my book traces is, is how uh, the establishment view has changed quite profoundly in the 20s and 30s. I don't see the council or really many other institutions looking to extend U.S. military dominance uh, throughout the world. Instead, they were operating within a broad paradigm of non-entanglement that went back to the founders that uh, saw the United States, yes, as a great power, uh, not a small power by any stretch, but one that fundamentally didn't have vital interests uh, in Europe or the Eurasian landmass, such that the United States had much business uh, you know, entering into alliance arrangements in those continents. And there's a tremendous shift uh, in 1940 and 41, uh, such that uh, entanglement becomes precisely what the establishment uh, view is about. Let's go back one more moment on this thread to 1941. So to again, paint the picture, May 10th, 1940, the Germans pour in to France and the Low Countries, and Winston Churchill becomes prime minister. A year and a half later, December 7th, 1941, that Sunday, Japan attacks the United States at Pearl Harbor. And of course, the US declares war on Japan the next day. What many people forget is that we were not at war with Germany at that point and perhaps would not have gone to war with Germany at all, because it would have been preemptive, until in a rather highly controversial move then and now, Hitler declared war on the United States that Thursday. So let's look at that counterfactual a, a minute. Let's say, Stephen Wertheim, that Hitler had not done that. Then what? What would happen to your thoughts? What would the United States have done? It's an interesting question. I suspect that in some fashion, uh, we would have ended up where we did end up, which is to say that the United States would have pursued a two-front war against all of the Axis powers. Um, obviously, how we would have gotten there would have been different. But if you go back a year in time, uh, Already, a, a consensus forms in the United States that the United States faces a kind of unified specter of Axis power. And although very few Americans want to enter the war before Pearl Harbor, before the Japanese attack that you mentioned in December of 1941, at the same time, about two-thirds of the country, about 60%, consistently maintain the view that it's more important to ensure that the Allied powers win the war than it is to avoid going to war. And that's why FDR proclaims the four freedoms around the turn of the, the winter of 1940-41, and proposes Lend-Lease, which abandons neutrality for the United States and commits the United States to aiding every of, uh, the, of uh, Germany and Italy, the Axis powers, short of outright war. 
So I think the fundamental strategic question is roughly settled by that point. And then the question becomes, what are the best means, the least costly means, too, for the United States to ensure uh, in Axis defeat or at least contain Axis power uh, for the indefinite future? And in that period, what was much more troubling to most U.S. foreign policy elites uh, was Germany, not Japan. Uh, this is why it was some, somewhat of a surprise to, to some Americans when it was Japan uh, who, got the, that, who got the United States uh, to declare war officially. But even prior to that, many observers uh, who favored intervention in the war, like Walter Lippmann, uh, would comment, we are in the war. We are in the war in all but name since we've abandoned neutrality and decided that it's more important to prevent an Axis victory, including and especially in Europe, uh, than it is to keep out of the war. Fascinating. Let's go back to another of the many important historical events you cover in this fine book, and that is the Monroe Doctrine of December 1823. What would you tell us about the Monroe Doctrine and its continued significance? The Monroe Doctrine is truly radical if you compare it to what American foreign policy is like today. The Monroe Doctrine said something familiar to us compared to the present, which is that the United States uh, wanted to see the new world in Western Hemisphere uh, develop with no further colonization by European powers. Uh, and, and it also claimed that if the people of the Western Hemisphere were left to their own free choice. They would surely choose to live in American-style Republican institutions. So those are some familiar ideas, the sense that the United States should lead the new world, this realm uh, free of power politics. It should be the preeminent power uh, a suspicion of European colonization in that realm, in a sense that the world naturally favors if left, if people are left to their own choice, uh, our system of government. But what was really striking about it uh, also was that the United States forswore intervention in European affairs by the very same token. Uh, so John Quincy Adams, the probably the main inspiration for the Monroe Doctrine, uh, famously said in, uh, in another address that the, the United States uh, should uh, not seek monsters to destroy, uh, which by which he meant the United States had no business interfering in European affairs. And the Monroe Doctrine elevated that principle and said the United States, uh, just as it would ask Europeans not to interfere or colonize the Western Hemisphere any further, neither would the United States uh, ha have any business in political or military terms uh, in Europe. So it really is a profound departure from the Monroe Doctrine uh, for the United States uh, in World War II to decide that it is vitally interested in European politics and must take a leading role in shaping those politics uh, henceforth. Well, let's follow up a little bit on that looking ahead. You're sitting in Washington, D.C. I'm sitting in California. Let's go to Beijing. 
Uh, is it possible that as China emerges as a peer competitor, that China might assert its own version of the Monroe Doctrine for East Asia, seeking in effect to expel the United States or reduce American influence in a grand bargain of this type? It is possible. Uh, and clearly China, uh, I think, is the um, the most formidable uh, competitor for the United States today. Uh, and the trajectory of its power bears watching. I don't think the United States and China are going to be great friends uh, going forward in the 21st century. At the same time, you know, we should ask, based on our own history, if China seeks to defend its coastlines, uh, for example, which is what it's done so far, uh, and projects some power in the Asia-Pacific, is that a problem for the United States? Uh, exactly what is the problem and how can we get to a place, uh, if we possibly can, uh, of mutual coexistence, which is to say this will be a competitive relationship, perhaps particularly in economic terms, uh, but not one that leads to a World War III. What does concern me is that uh, both powers may try to pursue primacy in the region uh, and only one can be number one in the region, and we could be uh, set for war. And I do wonder whether, you know, that although I think China is uh, a, a significant competitor to the United States today, uh, we should keep in mind there are profound differences between China and the Axis powers who originally called the United States uh, to become uh, the pre preeminent power in political and military terms in the middle of the 20th century. I mean, one big difference is that China has not embarked on a campaign of territorial conquest, uh, anything like uh, what uh, Germany, Italy, Japan, and others uh, did uh, in the 20th century. And that's a good thing. We should not want to um, uh, see that happen, of course. Uh, but it's notable uh, that uh, despite the increase in uh, the Chinese economy and military spending, uh, that that hasn't happened to date. Uh, in addition, the United States and China, um, they are competitive economically, but not mutually exclusive. And what really troubled American uh, officials and intellectuals in World War II and then in the Cold War uh, was the fact that uh, uh, Axis power and then Soviet-backed communist power, it wasn't just power, but it was power behind a totalitarian system of government, such that when, uh, at least in their view, you know, when uh, the Axis or the Soviets gained territory, that effectively closed off the territory to American-style engagement, trade in particular. Um, today, that's not the case. Uh, China is uh, not only integrated into the world economy, it's the number one uh, trading power in the world. Uh, that's not to say that there aren't uh, going to be uh, disputes. There are, clearly, uh, in um, trade practices and the like. Uh, but they're coming from a very different source. It's almost as though the interconnection uh, is the source of tension today, uh, where it was the walling off uh, in the 20th century that seemed to be the source of tension. Let's talk a little bit about empires. 
the United States created itself by rejecting its continued compliance as part of the British Empire at the time when the British Empire was very, very powerful in the world. Today, despite the fact that we don't have colonies in the sense of, the, say, the 19th and early 20th century, many view the U.S. as an imperial power. How do you view us in that way, and what would an empire look like in today's world, and what are the implications of that for how we think about it? Well, the United States, uh, you know, outside of uh, holding certain territories like Puerto Rico, Washington, D.C., uh, where I live now, uh, and Guam and some other military bases, isn't an empire in the formal sense of holding territory uh, that isn't incorporated into the main polity. So if that's your definition of empire, the answer for the United States today is not really, but sometimes people use empire to to uh, suggest a country that has overwhelming power and that's rather domineering and isn't following the rules, particularly the rules that it sets out for others. And I think that description um, does uh, fit a lot of uh, US behavior today, despite uh, all the rhetoric paid by some of our political system to cooperation, rules, law, international organizations, and and the like. Um, so, you know, I think it's uh, fair to ask whether uh, this kind of power for the United States, and I prefer to just, you know, call it more straightforwardly, the pursuit of military dominance. I think that's fundamentally what it is, and then you can debate whether that's empire to you or not. But to me, that's what it is. Uh, the United States clearly is pursuing military dominance on a global scale. And I think we should ask whether that is in fact uh, in line with our best traditions as a country and serves our interests in the 21st century. Um, I fear that the pursuit of military dominance almost as an end into itself becomes astrategic. It means the United States, instead of defending you know, things that will actually make life better for American citizens, finds itself defending its pre-existing positions in the world. And that leads to overstretch, inevitably, a classic case of imperial overstretch, if you will. Uh, but rather, our foreign policy should proceed from a serious analysis of what really makes uh, life more secure and more prosperous for Americans where they live and work. And in a world without the kind of totalitarian conquerors of the middle of the 20th century, in a world with threats like pandemic disease, which means that we're having to conduct this interview over, over uh, Skype, uh, I think uh, we should really take a hard look and evaluate every single one of our wars and military deployments and commitments that we have to ask, as Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, said uh, in one of his first statements on the job, uh, whether those policies make life better for most of the American people. Well, let's do a couple of quick follow-ups on these. First, I want to alert our listeners that the reference to imperial overstretch and the history behind it brings to mind Professor Paul Kennedy at Yale, who did a very respectful 
review of Stephen Wertheim's book in the Wall Street Journal. And of course, Kennedy, uh, Professor Kennedy is the author of The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers. Let's talk for a moment about this question about whether we're an empire or not, we're a great power. And that brings with it a lot of prerogatives, but it also brings with us a whole series of accrued obligations over time, as, as you've referred to, Stephen Wertheim. Has anybody done a basic catalog in a public place that lends itself to debate of the United States treaty obligations that could be triggered all over the world? It's a great question. I mean, those resources exist, but I don't know that they have received the kind of public uh, scrutiny that you are describing. It is a staggering list. It's a, a, as I understand it, it's about a third of the world that the United States is committed to defend. And then if you take informal commitments, you get many more people. So, you know, Saudi Arabia, a country that uh, is not is not a formal U.S. ally, is often thought of as an ally, and it's one of the countries that the United States would be more likely to uh, go to war to defend uh, today than a number of other countries that are formal allies. So it is a tremendous number, and I worry very much what happens. I mean, these alliance uh, commitments were expanded, not contracted in the 1990s, uh, in a situation where I don't think anybody really believed that um, they would have to be uh, triggered because of the weakness of all potential competitors, Russia uh, flat on its back after the collapse of the Soviet Union, China still a poor, if growing, country with very little military capability even along its coastlines. So that's now changed. And if the United States is not willing to make prudent retrenchments anywhere, and in fact only seems to uh, think about expanding its military obligations and commitments, uh, I worry uh, about a scenario in the next 10, 20, 30 years in which our uh, bluff gets called. And not only would that set up a terrible situation for the United States where suddenly we're going to war with Russia or China over uh, issues that may have no intrinsic significance to us, to the United States, uh, but it would call into question the rest of America's alliance commitments and would be ter a terrible way to, to treat other countries uh, who expected without uh, or with good reason uh, to have the United States to defend them if uh, it ever uh, came to pass that they would need such help. So let's stay on this one second. Is there anywhere you'd recommend, does the Quincy Institute or anywhere else have this kind of compilation that we in the public could go look at? If you don't, and it's not meant to put you on the spot, um, but I'll tell you, if you don't, I, I would make a respectful suggestion. This would be a brilliant project for the Quincy Institute. Well, I love it. I'm going to pass that, that along. I'm not sure we've, I've seen, I've seen these lists and maps elsewhere, but uh, I, I think it'd be a great service for us to put something together uh, that's easily accessible. So I, I love the idea 
And I'll pass that along. I'll, I'll do you one better. We've done reports at the Quincy Institute uh, talking about how the United States can reduce some of its alliance commitments. Uh, we've done a, a report about the Middle East that you know recommends that the United States uh, do very little militarily in the Middle East. Now, most of those countries aren't U.S. Uh, treaty allies. I'll also give you my view that, that I think the United States can dramatically reduce its military role in, in Europe. Uh, I think it's probably the only way that Europeans uh, will be incentivized to uh, take more responsibility for their own affairs. So I, I'd go far beyond what you know President Trump said uh, when he urged uh, European allies to spend more on defense. Um, the key is that the United States needs to make cutbacks in order to create the incentive for others to just to step up. Uh, and that clearly can be done. I think East Asia is a much harder case because of the potential for Chinese power to become more aggressive over time than it has so far. So I think we could take a more modest approach there, but I also think there's a really strong uh, imperative vis-a-vis uh, -vis China for the United States to have economic ties to tackle problems like climate change and pandemic disease, which require a modicum of diplomatic engagement, and to avoid World War III. That seems like something we should really want to avoid. And there are a lot of other capable allies and partners uh, in the region who should do more uh, for their own defense. After all, they would be much more threatened by the rise of Chinese military power uh, than the United States would be from across the Pacific. A political challenge in doing this, and I say this uh, in a nonpartisan way, I'm an independent and I will hopefully be forgiven for in this case, faulting both of the legacy political parties for the past generation, it's difficult for me to see U.S. leadership expressed in a way that gets political approval that would, uh, absent a much higher level of leadership than we've seen in the past generation, that would allow us to effectively pull back from commitments that are out of date or need to be reconsidered from a position of strength toward a wise overall policy, because clearly abandoning commitments, appearing to do so from a position of weakness or recklessness could present its own problems. What do you think? I think the question is, there's no doubt that it's a political challenge. So you're right. The question is, what's the source of the political challenge? Um, I think the American people would be quite supportive of a pullback from the greater Middle East. I think a lot of people in Congress and around Congress and think tanks um, would try to raise hell about that. But uh, politicians, uh, an American president who is committed to seeing this through, I think would find strong support from the American people. There's overwhelming support, for example, for despite all of our polarization, uh, to uh, get all of our troops out of Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, so to some extent, this is a question that hasn't been tested in the last three decades in our politics, whereas we've seen unlikely candidates become president uh, on the strength of their opposition to some wars, especially the war in Iraq. Think of 
Obama in 2008 and Trump in 2016, um, which, you know, not only signaled that they were opposed to uh, the war in Iraq, but also showed that they weren't conventional foreign policy thinkers and showed that they were had an independent cast of mind relative to uh, other American political leaders. So, you know, I, I, I think with, uh, you know, strong uh, a political willpower, the calculation could change. There are also going to be different events in the world, and it's quite possible. We've seen uh, so many things that illustrate the need for the United States to focus on its problems at home, to make more investments. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I think that uh, the costs of American, uh, the pursuit of American military primacy are becoming more and more apparent. And uh, if it comes to a real confrontation with a formidable competitor, not the kind of competitors in the Middle East that are much weaker, although have still given us a lot of grief over the past two decades, but let's say a Russia or a China, the costs will become apparent to people. And we could see um, public opinion and even uh, elite opinion shift quite considerably when an alliance goes from sounding like a nice thing that's cooperative and relies on this seemingly magical concept of deterrence to something that gets tested and then becomes uh, a commitment to go to war. Let's go back to John Quincy Adams. And I, am I right to assume that, that that his name is the source of the Quincy Institute's name? Is that that's correct, correct, yeah. Well, let's go back to the quotation you referred to about America that she does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She's the well-wisher to freedom and independence for all, but the champion and vindicator only of her own. And part of what Adams was saying, and he seemed to view himself correctly as a connector between the founding generation and the emerging next generation in the early 1800s, he also indicated that America would no longer be ruler of her own spirit. In effect, to say that republic and empire were not compatible. And this has echoes from James Madison as well. What do you think about that? And is that still a relevant question or consideration today? That part of his speech resonated with me and the other co-founders of the Quincy Institute uh, when we uh, selected uh, his middle name uh, to be the namesake for for the organization. Um, I think you know warfare and foreign policy is one of the ways that America defines what it is in the world. Um, you know, it's in, in opposition to others that what is America becomes apparent. And so if we take the last few decades, by waging continual warfare in a great part of the world um, with enemies that were hard for us to define, even to ourselves, that has had a really corrosive effect, I think, on what it is to be American. Um, it's brought, uh, you know, it's not just brought, you know, military-style 
rifles uh, onto our streets, but it's um, it's defined us as a kind of fearful, aggressive society. Uh, and we've almost inverted the insight of John Quincy Adams and other founders. When George W. Bush, after 9-11, um, said that, uh, you know, waging war would be a way to, you know, restore America's soul, he was saying that somehow pursuing violence over there uh, would make us better over here rather than being a, you know, tragic necessity for our own security after 9-11, but one that should be bounded. And, and we should be reluctant always to have to go to war. So we've made this part of the background of being American. Uh, and I think that's um, something that's worth a lot more uh, exploration than, than my off-the-cuff remarks right now. But I think it's been, um, I think it helps to explain some of the trends in our politics recently, where there's a great deal of vitriol and, and fear um, of foreigners. And that's come into our own civic life with uh, scapegoating immigrants, people of color, and so forth. Well, there's also a, a tremendous question that your excellent points uh, move us toward, and that is the separation, again, of the so-called elites and the political class from these wars. They do the decision-making and aren't even held accountable through declarations of war. They do these various kinds of uh, authorizations. But meanwhile, the real heavy lifting is done by Americans who, for the most part, are not part of that group. And what is going on with that? If you go back to yeah. the example prior American history, it was assumed that people in the so-called elites had partly earned their spurs by being in the military. That appears to be gone. Is that significant or am I just being nostalgic here? Oh, I think it's hugely significant. And of course, we've gotten rid of the draft, right? Yes. Um, so yeah, and this, this um, corrosion distrust between a lot of the public and our political class. I think foreign policy and endless war has a lot to do with that. We usually discuss this in the context of the financial crisis, 2008, and the aftermath. But the endless wars in which people are asked to make sacrifices, but uh, not asked to actually make a decision, and then see no accountability for terrible disasters like the Iraq War. Uh, that is a deep source of distrust and division in, in our society. And I'm not a populist, really. I think we need well-functioning experts in a complex modern democracy. Uh, but I think we have to explain how we've gotten to this point in our, in our country. And that is a big part of the explanation. Let's go back to George Washington and the work with Hamilton on his farewell address that set a lot of the notion of America's role in the world up until 1917 and Woodrow Wilson's taking us into the First World War, the Great War. It, you know, today we often talk about 
in the public discourse, people say American leadership, and that means intervention militarily or domination. It doesn't mean leading or influencing in the way we would ordinarily think about it. And on the other hand, the notion of us being the city on the hill that John Winthrop and, you know, in our time, Kennedy and Reagan and others pressed is sort of dismissed that the power of example is seen as not that significant. I wonder about that because in today's digitally connected world, one could make the argument that the power of our example and our failure to meet our own standards now and again are much, much more potent than ever before. What do you think? I see no reason why um, we should think we should hold in any less esteem the notion of uh, leading or influencing through the power of example than the founding fathers did. Uh, and I don't think, you know, circumstances have changed so fundamentally that the United States needs to encircle the world and insist uh, that it gets its way on every little thing. And of course, when it does that, it's really a certain uh, segment, na very narrow segment of the American foreign policymaking class that is really doing the insisting, not ordinary Americans. Uh, so I think you're right. And there's no, there's plenty of warrant in American history for uh, a real reorientation of America's role in the world that emphasizes non-coercive methods uh, as the essential uh, tool of American uh, statecraft and of American internationalism as opposed to coercive methods. It's only rather late in the sweep of American history around World War II that uh, this paradigm got flipped on its head. So I hope that the book that I've written, which recovers this earlier history, you know, provides a certain amount of optimism that uh, the United States can can find its its way. Obviously, we're going to have to do that in new conditions and in light of the specific challenges we face in the 21st century. But I think those challenges, when you analyze them, um, fit well into a paradigm of avoiding uh, political military entanglements uh, and engaging on the uh, issues that matter most uh, to the American people where they live and work. Stephen Wertheim, by my quick calculation, subject to your correction, you're of the millennial generation, uh, specifically an elder millennial and the typology of the glorious Eliza Schlesinger. So reflect for a moment on the generational aspects of making foreign policy, both in the 20th century that you cover and what do you see coming today? Yes, I think I'm a senior millennial. Um, <laughs> elder millennial, please. Uh, elder. Respect. Well, that's, yes, it's interesting. Okay. She's brilliant. Um, if you don't know her work, a comedian. Very good. <laughs> I'm struck every day. I have whiplash uh, because I will be in a room with uh, other members, uh, more conventional members of the foreign policy making class. And we'll have a really, you know, maybe nice, respectful conversation, but we have completely different starting points for what we even think American interests are in the world. They see, you know, American dominance as the thing that must be maintained. I see a liability for us and others. And then uh, just just last night, for example, uh, I did uh, dropped into a course of um let's say non-senior millennials, I think they're probably not even millennials at this point. <laughs> yes. Basically anybody my age or younger. Um, 
and you know this was in a uh uh elite kind of institution even uh but you know the questions if anything are all from the direction of you know am i too conventional am i too hawkish uh, what i am saying makes common sense uh, to younger generations who didn't grow up with the Cold War uh, and uh, have grown up instead with perpetual war. So I think a you know, profound generational change may be in the offing. And if you look at uh, some public opinion polls that have usefully broken things down into generations, uh, you see some confirmation of that. It's the uh, broadly defined millennial group uh, according to one survey by the Chicago Council, uh, which is the first generation since the greatest generation to say, or to be basically split on the question of whether it's very important for the United States to maintain military superiority in the world. Slightly underwater now for the first, for the first time since the mid 20th century greatest generation. And interestingly enough, there's been, according to that survey, a gradual decline generation by generation. So it's not just a new thing, but a continuation of a trend. I think the question is, will our political institutions reflect the changing worldview of younger generations? And if so, how long will that take? Well, a big part of the question practically, maybe, and this relates directly to your work, it seems to me, that we need to take much more seriously the use of history as having direct relevance today and into the future, including in this area. So for example, obviously each generation has a different perspective just by virtue of their time of birth when they've lived, but they should be much more able to dis discuss these things and work them through together if they can work from a common base of historical understanding. And that does not seem to be with us today. One more quick thought on that. I'm struck if you look back 100 years ago, and there's things better and worse. But Woodrow Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt, for all their differences, were both serious historians themselves, uh, as well as international strategists. They were both presidents of the American Historical Association. Now, I could look at recent presidents, again, irrespective of party, I couldn't imagine them following a meeting of the American Historical Association almost, much less being president. What do you think about that? Well, sometimes I confess I have trouble following some meetings in the American <laughs> Historical Association, <laughs> but I very much take your point. You know, there is a common invocation of history uh, in American foreign policy. It's just superficial. There's been a lot of discussion in the past five, 10 years about the so-called post-war US-led uh, rules-based liberal international order, almost entirely aimed to say how terrible it was that Donald Trump supposedly stood against it, when really hardly anyone could define what this was. And then if you would read Descriptions of this supposed order, it would include institutions like the EU created in the 1990s in that order. Um, you know, NATO is created after the UN. There's just a million problems one, one has with it. So uh, we don't just need more history. That would be nice. Uh, but we need to have a real openness to the richness that history properly understood can provide us. It should be mind opening and often makes 
doesn't have easy lessons, certainly not the simplistic lessons uh, that suddenly become the uh, talking points of, 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 of the day. And even where it's contested, the very contesting of that can be valuable. And we just simply for the moment seem to be turning our back on it. Let's, in closing, Stephen Wertheim, you obviously have so much to think about. You've written a brilliant and beautiful new book. And by the way, it's very attractively designed, I would add, as well as written so beautifully. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Well, I hope your listeners judge the book by its cover. So go look it up. Tomorrow the World, the Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. Uh, my words don't do justice to the beautiful cover. You're absolutely right. And I had nothing to do with that cover. But uh, more seriously, I hope that uh, listeners will uh, find it to be uh, an enjoyable read and one that is illuminating, whatever they make of it. I think it's possible to read this book. I have made a lot of discoveries in, in archives um, it's, uh, I think it's probably impossible to, to read the book and not learn something you hadn't known before. And, uh, I think it's possible to read the book and come to the conclusion, well, maybe U.S. leadership, military leadership was, uh, an important and necessary thing. But I hope you'll think about why that was, if that was the, uh, in its original moment in the middle of the 20th century and whether, uh, going forward today, so um, so knee-jerk in attachment to American military dominance, uh, it w is what will really endure and what will serve the United States and the world best going forward. And we clearly are going to be a leader. The point is, what kind of leader? And that needs to be perhaps reconsidered. Stephen Wertheim, how can listeners best follow and connect with you on social media? Well, I'm sorry to say I've got a Twitter handle. It is at Stephen Wertheim, that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Wertheim, W-E-R-T-H-E-I-M. Not the best name for a Twitter handle, but that's the one I've been blessed with. So you can go there. I think that's, you know, I have an Instagram and, and Facebook, but, you know, I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing on those. Stick with Twitter. And uh, I write a lot at the New York Times and elsewhere, so you can check that out as well. Spoken like the fine historian you are. Thank you, Stephen Wertheim. It's been a delight to have you with us. And again, congratulations on your spectacular new book, Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please take just a moment and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And please send me ideas for future guests and topics. And follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website, Serve to Lead. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.